I'm Eric Boss, a pioneer rep from Exeter, Ontario, and you're listening to the Pioneer Made to Grow podcast. Thank you very much, Eric, and welcome to the Pioneer Made to Grow podcast. I'm Andrew Campbell, and I couldn't be happier to be sitting in this host chair, bringing you some of the best information and guests that agriculture has to offer. As a farmer, I've got a lot of questions that are likely similar to yours, all of them tied to how can we do a better job in the field so that we can get a better crop in the bin. For our first episode, we thought it important to start at the same point you start each year. Of course, there's making a good spring planting plan, and then when Mother Nature makes the decisions, well, we all know how those plans are forced to turn flexible. So why don't we get underway? Our first guest today is a pioneer field agronomist out of Michigan and somebody with decades of experience. In fact, there are few agronomists in North America who have as much hands-on experience working in the field. Welcome, Gary Brinkman. Gary, why don't you start by sharing with us what it is your day looks like working for Pioneer? On a daily basis, I usually do a lot of uh, direct work with growers. Um, my greatest joy is walking fields, grabbing a grower and walking his fields, and just seeing what we can learn. So then if your favorite part is that part, you know, going out with a grower, walking fields, maybe what we can do for this conversation is start at the beginning of the season with that grower and take a pretty broad stroke at this because when it comes to spring planting and the conditions that a grower is going into, give me an idea. What are the three or four things that you find to be most important a grower's got to consider? Yeah, every every year I I always get a phone call, and generally it's maybe around April fifteenth, April twentieth, and the grower asks, "Should I be planting?" And my first question back to them is, "Well, what are your soil conditions like?" And um, over the years, I'm going into my fortieth year growing season, which is kind of exciting. Over the years, what I've realized is that Ideal soil conditions is what growers really need to be focusing on. And coupled with that is the whole idea of planting early. Um, one thing I tell a grower is if you're going to air, you air early. And part of that goes back to the fact that their primary role is to capture solar radiation. They need to take their farmer hat off, say, I'm a scientist, my job is to capture solar radiation. What is the most opportunity, what, what is the greatest management tool I have to drive that opportunity? And planting data is that opportunity. So when growers are thinking about making that first step, I always recommend planting into ideal soil conditions. When I'm planting early, I don't have to compromise soil conditions. So generally that would be a, a target tiled uh, fields. Um, where I have good drainage. And my other thought is that when planting early in those ideal soil conditions, those ideal soil conditions trump soil temperature of 50 degrees. We have a lot of growers that wait for that 50 degree mark and they miss opportunities by doing that. Then if we can back up for a second here, and if planting date is number one on your list, Gary, 
I mean, why is that? And what kind of impact are we looking at in terms of yield potential in the long term for this crop? Generally, in Michigan, Canada as well, our summer solstice is June 21st. That's the longest day of the year. What I want to try and do is to strive to have my canopy closure near that point. Because again, I'm going, my, my role is to capture solar radiation. And in order to do that, I need to have canopy closure, whether it's a corn crop or soybean crop, um, at or around that time to glean the most benefit from my growing season. Uh, corn responds really well to light intensity. As I increase light intensity, I increase my rate of photosynthesis. That is why I want to capture as much solar radiation, because that really um, is the main driver of, of my yields. Over time, here's what will happen. A grower that plants early, if we consider ultra early, let's say between the 15th and 20th of April, um, that will not always be my highest yielding, but it beats the alternative of planting in June. Um, in June, generally, I'm forced to plant in compromised soil conditions. And yes, I'd like to have 50-degree soil temperatures, but ideal soil conditions trump my soil temperatures. So therefore, I go back and I look at that opportunity, and we saw that uh, come together so well in 2020. Uh, growers were responding to the issues of 2019, they said, I am not going to plant late again. Um, so they had a window open up early in 2020, and they jumped. And it was the best decision they made. Then, Gary, we've got planting date as being key and obviously making sure that the soil conditions are good when we do go in. Thinking about soil temperature here for a second, is there ever a concern that things do get too cold or... Should a grower just go plant? I, I would say there's a range of the bottom, and, and I might say between 40 and 45 degrees. The one thing I know is, especially if I'm in ideal soil conditions, that's like taking my seed out of the bag and just putting it in a refrigerator. It's continued to stay cool. Ideally, I would like to see um, my soil temperatures the first 24 hours, if they can be in the mid-40s to even hitting uh, the upper 40s, that would be ideal. Because what we see is when I plant into ultra-cold temperatures, so for example, um, I'm, I'm not watching what the weather is going to be in the next three to five days. And in, in the day after I plant, I get a snowstorm. And, and I get that icy cold water freezing or melting onto my seed, that's when we get chill injury and we get less than uniform, ideal emergent. So the first 24 hours are really critical. I'm sorry, we just, in our northern climate, we would wait way too long for that ideal 50 degrees. And the thing that I tell or remind growers is, yes, I can place my seed in cold soils. Eventually, warmer soil temperatures will always come. There is not the guarantee that I will experience ideal soil conditions again. 
The one other key that's part of this is making sure growers are achieving adequate planting depth. And I would say that two inches is that ideal uh, planting depth. What, what growers will find is by positioning it in that, in that uh, planting depth, I have created a buffer against some of the really cold temperatures. A lot of research shows that I get more uniform emergence at two inches than I do at, in, at an inch. Well, thanks very much, Gary, for all of this insight with our first episode. The next place we want to go is to bring some of this advice even closer to home. John Saliga is an agronomist for Southwestern Ontario with Pioneer. And maybe we'll start with the same question for you, John, as we ask Gary off the top. Tell me a bit about what your day looks like working for Pioneer. Basically, what I do, Andrew, is support our Pioneer sales network uh, of uh, sales representatives, uh, as well as their customer base uh, here in the deep southwest. Uh, I help train on products, position products with customers, and of course, you know, as always, uh, field support from an agronomy standpoint uh, throughout the growing season. In that support role that you do have, you're obviously both seeing the results in southwestern Ontario from spring planting decisions, but also in constant contact with your colleagues across the province. When I think of Ontario, at least, I think huge variability in things like heat units, for sure, but soil types as well, where we've got some pretty heavy dirt, even just a few blocks from some sand. So when we are thinking Ontario specific, what do you put as the top priority for growers to think about in the springtime? I got to say, my preference uh, when it comes to kind of that golden rule is going to be first and foremost soil conditions. Uh, I, I think I think we've had good experience in the past where 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 planting date uh, was significantly ahead of where we would think the normal planting date for Ontario might be, uh, as well as significantly later than what we thought the perfect planting date would be, and and in both cases results you know, results obviously varied, but there's, there's good examples of where, where producers have been successful doing that. Um, I think, you know, each producer needs to understand their scenario from, uh, from a soil type standpoint. I think your, uh, you know, your reference to the heavy clay soils that are, are predominant, certainly across the area that I cover, uh, those, those soils are much more temperamental and you, you really have to be in touch with, uh, with the condition and, and when it's ready to go because pulling the trigger too early on a soil type like that uh, might not just cause issues in the current growing season but could result in challenges further down the road. Then let's talk about that soil condition for a minute. How do we know that it's right? First and foremost, uh, it's critical uh, that we actually get into the field, physically into the field, uh, not driving by the field, uh, not swinging in with the, with the cultivator and, 
and 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 making a big swath and and looking behind and having making the decision on whether that field is is fit or not we really need to be on the ground uh you know if you've got a spade handy it's always good uh, to go out into the field and 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 dig up dig up some soil in a couple of spots and see what the conditions are really like uh, uh, mistakes get made so quickly anymore with the size of the equipment we have and the, and the amount of acres that our producers can cover in a day, uh, you know, taking the time to critically evaluate that is, is paramount. Now, when we do talk about that though, I mean, sometimes when we have our shovel and we see that it's close, maybe not perfect, but it's close, is there ever a time when we can compromise a little or do we really have to be patient and wait for what the best practices tell us to do? It's, it's funny. I think all agronomists uh, and all producers for, for all intents purposes want to follow the rules and want to follow those best practices. Uh, but to, to think that there won't be situations where compromise is warranted uh, would, would simply be wrong. I, I mean, we face those situations uh, on a yearly basis. And, you know, an example, perfect example is 2019, where planting date was delayed exceptionally long. And there were, uh, there were growers that had to make decisions uh, to go on land that wasn't ready to go. Uh, but, of course, you know, with compromise comes cost, but there's a balance that every producer needs to, uh, needs to take into account. And is that what it's all about then? Recognizing that if we do go in when the soil isn't quite right or are planting on a less than ideal day, that we just recognize at least that we are compromising a bit and that there may be a cost to doing that. Well, absolutely. And, and I mean having realistic expectations. If, if you are making a compromise, and most times you know if you're making a compromise, uh, realizing that you're not going to be capable of, of reaching that full potential that you had envisioned in your mind uh, before, you know, before spring arrived. Then finally, on this idea of compromise, especially given the hybrids and the varieties we have out there, I mean, when we look at the choices we have in seeds, there are some pretty impressive lineups that offer really the best potential a grower has ever had for yield. Does that at all mean we can push the limits a little more or not if we want to actually realize that potential? Great question, and certainly our modern genetics today—the the, you know the products that we're releasing uh, each year, uh, all companies are releasing each year—are kind of that next level of performance, and 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 those products were designed to handle higher levels of stress uh, and defend against you know all the enemies that we face uh, in production agriculture, whether it be insects or disease. And I think, uh, you know, 
you have to understand that those improvements are not a substitute for sound agronomic management. And in, in our effort to optimize the production on the acres that we're currently farming, uh, the more we can do to ensure those products have the utmost ability to reach their full potential, uh, the better chance we're going to reach that. And, 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 and yeah, I don't think we can assume that because they're, they're stronger, better products, uh, that we can put them through a, a more difficult situation. Thanks very much for all of that, John, and what a perfect segue to our final guest for the show, and that's Corteva's Research and Development Lead for Eastern Canada, Travis Coleman. Thanks for joining us, Travis, and as you just heard John talk about, we've got these really strong genetics coming to market that are showing more potential all the time for what is possible with yield. I want to get to that for sure, but maybe start by introducing yourself and what you do for Corteva. Yeah, sure. So as the R&D lead for Eastern Canada, uh, I'm primarily responsible for uh, corn uh, development, corn product development. And so I, I lead a team of uh, about 35 to 40 people, um, includes uh, breeders, scientists, and um, all of the, the operational and technical people that um, make the, the gears go around. Um, and our responsibilities for uh, corn product development in the, uh, the early maturities um, and representing uh, Eastern Canada geographies. Now, when we do take a look at R&D in Corteva, what is the process behind the scenes that you and your team are working through to bring some of these new hybrids and varieties so that they are providing this unprecedented potential to growers? Corn's a hybrid crop, right? So... Uh, there's different components to the development process, um, and the pipeline's actually fairly long um, in a in a plant breeding development pipeline, right? So it might take, depending on your crop, you know, five to ten years, um, you know, to actually bring something um, to market. So you know, the first stage in a corn uh, hybrid development is centering around inbred development, right? So we have to develop uh, female inbreds and male inbreds independently. And then we uh, evaluate them and uh, cross them to produce hybrids. And then the second phase of the development pipeline is essentially about um, determining which of those hybrids are, are going to be the best hybrids and then evaluating them in the field, getting them into local geographies to see how they respond to you know, local uh, conditions, soil types, climate, whatever. And, um, and then uh, kind of driving that all the way to uh, commercialization decisions. So. It's, um, it's basically like a big funnel. And um, what we try to do is we try to keep the top of that funnel or really maximize um, the size of that funnel, the um, number of different um, you know, genetic lines that we can sample, the number of different hybrids we can create, uh, and then just putting it through this selection process to, to identify the best ones as we go. Then let's talk about that selection process for a second here, because I do imagine at the top of this funnel of yours being really quite large with all of the potential you have to look at. And the challenge I'm sure early on is for you to narrow that down quickly in order to be picking the best hybrids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's been kind of the big game changer um, 
you know, as new technologies, like new enabling technologies come online and then um, just the cost of being able to, to do these things in really high throughput, high volume, right? So, you know, traditionally the, the, that funnel would have been kind of narrower and longer, like um, you'd have fewer opportunities to sample large uh, data sets or large, um, you know, numbers of, of uh, genetic lines, things like that. And it would take longer to evaluate them. Um, and now what we're doing is we're really widening that through um, things like um, molecular marker technologies, right? So if you look at, um, you know, the, the Human Genome Project, um, you know, not even 20 years ago, that took $3 billion to complete. And now today you could, you know, get your own genome sample with a, you know, a mail order kit that's under a thousand bucks probably. Um, so that just kind of illustrates the scale um, that, that you can do this kind of molecular analysis on, right? So, um, and, and the big thing that we're really leveraging is um, probably twofold. In the molecular space, it's uh, molecular prediction. So any, any type of um, trait or attribute that, that we would want to select for in our breeding programs, if we can measure that, and if it's her a heritable trait, then we can basically use molecular markers to predict what those traits would be like in lines that we haven't even observed. So long before you get to the field, you could have, you know, fat tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of different, you know, possibilities um, of things that you would then take to the field, but you obviously can't test a million things in the field. So we use these molecular predictions to really um, kind of stack the deck, if you will, or really identify the absolute top subset. And then we take them forward to uh, you know, field testing in the local regions and things like that. Stack the deck. I like that, Travis, because really when I look at it, you've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of choices that you are doing these molecular predictions on. What are some of the traits or attributes that you are trying to look for or trying to identify that you know a grower is looking for as well? Yeah, so that, that kind of depend, depends a little bit on the, the geography, right? In your local market, um, it depends a little bit on your product concepts and where your commercial lineup's at, right? But like I said, it's really anything that you can um, measure and, and is heritable. So, you know, yield is obviously uh, always something that we're pushing on. Um, in Canada, uh, a lot of it is about bringing high-performing genetics from the south up into our geography, but making it fit our maturity. Um, and then, you know, a lot of things around agronomics, right? So, um, you know, late season standability, you know, root lodging, stock lodging, um, it, really anything that we can measure, flowering time, uh, disease resistance, um, things like that. Thanks very much, Travis, for that. That was Travis Coleman, along with John Saliga and Gary Brinkman on the inaugural episode of the Pioneer Made to Grow podcast. Coming up on our next episode, now that we have our best practices in mind for spring planting, what about the seed applied treatments? That'll be up for discussion next time here on the Pioneer Made to Grow podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, we hope you'll recommend us to a friend or even rate us on your preferred podcast platform. That way more people can find us. You can also get in touch on Twitter at the handle PioneerSeedsCA or my personal handle, Fresh Air Farmer. And for more info or advice, you can always talk to your local Pioneer rep 
or visit pioneer.com.